Hello, I'm Erin. I'm a first year linguistics and English student. Um, I'll be doing the Bible reading today, which is Genesis 23. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me, so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Marmah, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, were deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Marmah, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Thanks, Erin. There's a, um, uh, an outline on the handout, if that's any help to you. Now, I'll see if I can get this microphone a bit louder. Is that better? Can you hear me? See how we go. Thank you. Well, finish this uh, saying for me. Home is where the heart is. Yeah, that's right. Well, where's your heart? That is, where's the place you yearn for? The, the place where, when you feel lost and lonely, you go to relax. The place you go to feel at home. The place you've got roots that go down deep. I suspect for most of us, there's no such place, is there? We've moved around. Uh, I calculated recently that except for the house I live in at the moment, I've never lived in any house in my life more than five years. My parents have just upped and moved. Rosemary and I have upped and moved. There's no place really called home. And where is home for you? Where is that place you have a deep connection? So deep that you think, this is home. It's not in a loo, is it? (laughs) It's not the house you live in at the moment, I presume. Uh, uh, but it's quite different in many other cultures. Uh, let me tell you about Anthony, a friend of mine from Zimbabwe. He lives in the city at the moment, but he grew up in a village up in the Eastern Highlands, and that's home for him, because that's not just where he grew up, it's where his parents grew up. It's where his grandparents grew up. Even the, the home that he lived in as a kid has been washed away by cyclone. It's still home for him. 
Every time there's a holiday, if he can afford it, he drives the eight hours back to the village because that's home. That's the soil he knows. That's the people he knows, the trees, the river. That's home for him. How many of you have lived in the same house all your life? There are a few. How many of you have lived in the same house that one of your parents has lived in all their life? No, we don't have... (laughs) Jacinta, farm girl, yeah. Because farmers, I suspect, are about the only people in our culture that have that sense of connection with land. Except, of course, our Indigenous brothers and sisters. They have it in spades. Let me... I'll come to that in a minute. Um, uh, but most of us have been mobile. We, we don't sort of pick up a bit of dirt and let it drift through our fingers and say, this is home. Unless, of course, you're from a farm. But let me say something about Christians. See, if you're a Christian, we don't have a home here. Uh, Peter says that we're strangers and foreigners in this time. We're, we're exiles, we're temporary residents, we're away from home. There's a word that we don't use much now in English that captures it, a sojourner, a temporary resident, living in tents. You know, those refugee camps you see on TV of people who've come out of places like Syria. It's, it's not home and it's not their new home. It's just a temporary home. Well, Peter says that's what we are as Christians because our home is not here. It's not the house I live in at the moment. It's the age to come. It's the kingdom of Jesus. It's the new heaven and a new earth. And I haven't seen that yet. I I haven't actually touched it. It hasn't gone through my fingers so that I can tangibly feel it. But I will inherit it one day. And that means I'm just passing through this world. It's temporary. It's not permanent. My permanent home is yet to come. And that means Christians live by faith, not by sight. Trusting, hoping, longing for that home that's to come. And it's that same spirit of faith that we see in Abraham in Genesis chapter 23. We've been following uh, Abraham for a while now. Uh, Our public meetings for this semester have been looking at Genesis 12 to 23. This is the last in the series. And we get to the death of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. We've been following him for these 60 years and it's been a journey of faith. Lots of ups and downs on Abraham's part. Uh, good days and bad days. But his life was turned upside down on the day that God appeared to him and spoke to him and made these promises to him. Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. And to your offspring, I will give this land. Go to a land. Uh, Now, in Genesis 12 to 22 that we've been following, the focus in these promises has not been land But the nation, its offspring, if these are the promises, it's mainly been about that bottom left-hand one. Will Abraham and Sarah have a child? Will there be any future? Will there be progeny, an offspring who can become a nation? And finally, in chapter 21, Isaac, the child, the son is born. Bit of a hiccup last week. God says to Abraham, go and sacrifice uh, Isaac. But he saves him. But now for a little moment, the focus moves from offspring to land. Because the question is, where will Abraham bury Sarah, his wife who's just died? Now, this chapter brings out some of the love and affection that Abraham has had for Sarah. He mourns and weeps for her. He spends a large amount of money to buy her a burial plot. We feel for Abraham 
in the sorrow at the end of this partnership, this marriage that has gone for something like 100 years. But where is he going to bury her? Now, for most of us, that's not a very big question because we just bury the person in the nearest cemetery, don't we? Wherever they've died, we, we just go and bury them. But there's a story in the ABC News last, week, uh, last year, late last year, about some community leaders, Indigenous leaders from Elko Island in the Northern Territory, who wanted the Northern Territory government to allow them to bury their dead on their own island, in their own country. They said, it's not just that Yongu people have kinship. The land has kinship too. And when we decide where to bury that person, it's according to kinship lines and links. You, you bury them at home, at the home for our peoples. So down the bottom, if we lose our rights to the choice of where to bury our loved ones, then we lose our life. It really is death. Our home is where we are. Our spirit travels. Now, I don't know whether you can relate to that or not. It's, it's a bit of a different culture, isn't it? A deep longing to be buried where the tribal home is, where the kinship connections are, where the land is our land that we've had for generations upon generations. To be buried away from there in a white man's cemetery is death, the worst possible death. And that cultural drive exists in most peoples of the world. That idea of home runs deep in most cultures. If my friend Anthony in Zimbabwe, the only place to be buried is back in the village because that's home. To be buried anywhere else is death because there's generations of family there. There's deep connections there. And Abraham's culture is that where you bury your dead, well, you always bury them in the ancestral home. You bury them where you've come from. In fact, the language of burial in that world is to be gathered to your people, to be gathered to your family. Well, where is that for Abraham? Well, his family home is in Ur, on the right-hand side. At the moment, he's in Canaan, a place called Hebron. Where should he bury Sarah? Well, obviously, he should bury her back in Ur, make the long journey back to that ancestral home to be gathered to her people. But Abraham doesn't. He decides to bury Sarah near where they've been living in Canaan. Not for convenience, but for something much richer and deeper. And it's an interesting chapter because most of it tells the story of how Abraham acquired the burial site for Sarah. And it's a story laced with negotiations and courtesy and subtle humour. This strange focus and attention. But you wonder what's the significance? Well, Abraham's been living in this land of Canaan for most of the last 60 years as a nomadic herdsman, living in tents. He's got his herds around him, moving around, uprooting his tent, pitching it somewhere else, moving around this country. But Hebron has become pretty much his favourite place. It's about 30 kilometres south of modern-day Jerusalem. And he goes to the local landowners, who are called Hittites, to buy a suitable plot of land to bury his wonderful wife. And, and we go through these subtle negotiations between Abraham and the Hittites. Begins in verse 4 with a polite request. I'm a foreigner or a stranger. I don't really belong here. Sell me some property for a burial site so I can bury my dead, my wife. And the Hittites respond. You want to buy some land to bury your dead? Well, we'll give you some land. We'll give you a place. Verse 5. Listen, you're a mighty prince. You're not just a nobody. We, we, you've won respect. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse his tomb for burying your dead. Take your pick, Abraham. We'll give you a tomb for Sarah. But Abraham 
doesn't want to do it. <laughs> They've ignored his request, sell me. They say, we'll just give it to you. And Abraham sort of gets into the negotiations then. He says, verse 8, if you're willing to uh, let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zophar, on my behalf. Then he, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. He shows the due courtesy, but it's clear he wants to buy the land, not get given the land. And he actually already knows the bit he wants. It's that cave of Machpelah in Ephron's field. He doesn't want to take up their offer of giving him a burial plot. Because gift means obligation. It always does in almost every culture. When you give somebody something, you don't, they don't really own it. You've just lent it to them till you want to pull the string again. And she'd be buried amongst the Hittites. She'd really be one of them, in a sense. And so Abraham tries to negotiate. He says, well, thank you. You've been really kind, but I want to buy it. And that's what I want to buy. He politely twists their offer. If you're willing to give me, well, surely you'd be willing to sell me. And interestingly, Ephron is actually sitting there. Abraham doesn't go privately and say, Ephron, can we do a deal? He does all this publicly because he wants this to be public. He wants the transfer to be known by all, to be clear and permanent. And they go to, well, Ephron's there and he responds. And again, it's, it's courtesy and it's, it's playing games. Uh, no, my Lord, listen to me. I'll give you the field and I'll give you the cave in it. I'll give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. You think, oh, well, if Abraham wants to save some money, this sounds like a good deal. But he doesn't. He bows down before all the people, verse 12, and he says, listen to me, if you will, I'll pay the price for this. He insists on buying it. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead. And Ephron, <laughs> he knows what's going on, I reckon. He says, well, listen to me, my Lord, verse 14. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what's that between you and me? And I'm like, no, I'll give it to you, but what I'm giving you is worth 400 shekels of silver. It's worth $100,000, but what's $100,000 between friends? And what does Abraham do? He says, okay, you told me what the price is. There it is. He pays up straight away. It's sort of interesting negotiations in it, isn't it? Notice that Abraham doesn't haggle. He's willing to pay the full price, which is probably an exorbitant price. He's willing to do that so he owes them nothing. He has it clear and free, permanently. And then they sign the deal uh, in public. Uh, I guess this is ver their version of, of putting your forms into Landgate. It's all legal, legit and public. And he acquires the first tiny bit of the promised land to bury his wife. She's not gathered to her ancestors. She's buried alone. The first body of Abraham's family buried in the new family cemetery. It's the cemetery where Abraham is going to be buried when he dies, where Isaac and Re Rebekah are buried, where Jacob says, Jacob dies in Egypt. And I tell you what, Egypt is the best place to get the best funeral you can ever have. You know, think of the pyramids. But what does he say? He says, bury me back in the cave of Machpelah. Gather me to my people, because that's home for me in the promised land, the, the land that God had promised. Do you see what's happening? Location for Abraham is critical. That's what real estate says. Location, location, location. Read verse 19 again. 
Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. That's the critical bit. Abraham is living by faith in the promises of God. God had promised him, I'm going to give you this land of Canaan. Well, not really to you, but to your descendants as a permanent possession. And it looked pretty unlikely. And God had even said to Abraham, it's not going to happen for at least 500 years. You know, just be patient. Wait, wait, you're going to die. Your kids are going to die. But finally, I'm going to give it to your family as their land. And when they have it, it will be home for them. And Abraham's actions show his faith. He believes the promises of God. He believes that this land will one day become his, at least in the persons of his ancestors. And so he invests in this land. He puts his roots down in his land. He treats Canaan as home. He sets his heart on this land in anticipation. And so he buries his wife in this land. Now, if the rest of Sarah's relatives had known that she was getting buried in Canaan, they would have been outraged. He can't do that, Abraham. She belongs back here. He breaks with family. He breaks with family home. It would be like me on a burying rosemary in Belarus or Kazakhstan or somewhere. But he does it. His actions show that his heart has shifted. If home is where the heart is, his heart is now, his home is now Canaan. Not because he had a great holiday there, but because God had promised him that land on oath. And we see something of that even in verse 4, the way Abraham thinks about himself. I am a foreigner and a stranger. They're interesting words because they're words the rest of the Bible picks up. Significant words that help you see what Abraham thinks about himself and his experience of life. Day after day, year after year, decade upon decade, he's been living in a land that is not his, walking the length and breadth of it, sifting the soil through his fingers, knowing that God has pledged it to him. It will be his one day, but he doesn't treat it yet as mine. He doesn't say to the Hittites, listen, I'm going to have this one day. I'm just going to take a bit of land for myself. It will be his one day, but his experience at the moment is an outsider, an alien, a misfit, and he's okay with that. He's happy to have no home for now because he trusts that one day God will change that situation. He doesn't say to the locals, well, this is mine, you're the foreigner, but he's content to be the foreigner, the misfit for now, living in tents, building no brick houses for himself. He's content to live as a foreigner himself for now, knowing that God will make it his home in the future. And he doesn't think, well, it's not my home yet. I better find another one for the moment. I'll find another place that I can relax in and put my roots down in like Cottesloe or Albany or somewhere. No, he says, that will be my home. So that is where I set my heart. This is how Hebrews puts it. All these people, including Abraham, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things God promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things, that's what Abraham just said, didn't he? Show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country that they'd left, like Ur of the Chaldees, they would have had an opportunity to go back. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, God, one provided by God himself. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
because he's prepared a city for them. They lived by faith, trusting that God would give them a home, a better one, a heavenly one. Heavenly meaning not ephemeral, non-physical, but one that God delivers. And Abraham is longing for that home, confident that it's going to come. And so he's content to be a stranger, a foreigner, a misfit for now, to feel disconnected and uprooted and, and, and out of place because this world is not his home. God taught me a very helpful lesson 20-odd years ago, 30-odd years ago, actually. Um, I, I grew up mainly in Sydney, um, and after Rosemary and I got married, we moved to Perth, but my family home was still in Sydney. My parents were still living there. The home I'd spent my great teenage years in was, was still there, that, the house. I still had stuff sort of un, underneath in storage. Uh, we moved to Perth, and we lived in Perth in Daglish for a while, and then we moved to a little country town called Wildcatcham, which has about 400 people in it, a tiny little town. Uh, and in the meantime, my parents moved from Sydney to Kenya, and we went back to Sydney to, to, for something soon after we moved to Wildcatcham. And I had this, this strange experience of suddenly feeling homeless because my home in Sydney was not, no longer there. I couldn't go back to the bedroom I'd, I'd slept in as a teenager. Uh, sure, the house was there, but my parents weren't there. I, I couldn't go and visit. And Perth was no longer home because we'd moved out of Perth. And while Ketchup wasn't home, we'd only lived there three months. And I felt totally at sea. And at that point, God reminded me, Tim, this is not your home. Perth isn't your home. While Ketchum isn't your home, Sydney isn't your home. The age to come is my home. Heaven is my home. That's where I belong. That's where God makes me safe. That's my future. Not just temporary, but permanent. This is how Paul puts it in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is not, sorry, is in heaven. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. I have a passport that says, my nationality is Australian. It's a great passport to have because you can go to most places of the world and you might be able to get it back into Australia if you're overseas. Not at the moment probably, but normally. It says, my citizenship is Australian. But God tells me my citizenship as an Australian is temporary. It only lasts a little while, but my citizenship that's permanent is heaven. I'm just passing through this life and this world. And so Paul says Christians are those who eagerly wait, longing for Jesus to appear, to bring that new creation, to give us bodies fit for eternity, hearts filled for eternity with the joy of being home at last, with Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Jesus himself left his home, didn't he? He emptied himself of the status of God the Son to be a sojourner, a stranger and an exile among us. Dying, he was buried in a cave far from his real home. But God the Father raised him to life, the first member of a new creation, the first citizen of the age to come. He's prepared a place for you and for me by his death and resurrection, a home for us. That that was actually his life's work. To give us a home. If you're not a Christian, please hear me. God is offering you a home, a real home. Not just temporary, not just something that you might discard after a little while, but forever. 
eternal, immortal life in his new creation. A place where there'll be no death, no evil, no exams, no anxiety. The best home you could possibly imagine. That is offered to you because Jesus has prepared it for you. Do you want it? But let me tell you something. To have that as your home, you've got to realise this world isn't home. And renounce all the ways of striving to make this place home, that desperate investment in houses and bricks and mortar, clinging to every friendship you possibly can, unwilling to lose the approval of parents. Yes, there's a home, but it's got to be your home. And also, if you're not a Christian, can I say to you, I hope with humility, you don't need to be afraid of Christians as if they're out to take your home from you. Competing with you for ownership and power. We, we aren't, or at least we shouldn't be. I apologise when we do. Because this world is not our home. We aren't after power. We don't want to control your lives. We aren't competitors striving to own this world and make it our home, to take it from you. If you're a Christian, do you see the way Abraham lived by faith and not by sight? He lived in the present in the light of what God had promised for his future. And so he buried Sarah in his future, in Canaan. He invested in the home that God had promised him. He lived as if that was his home, even though at the moment he didn't own it, he didn't have it, it wasn't in his hand. Packer, who's one of my favourite Christian authors, died earlier this year. He said, this is something to tell yourself every day. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. He encourages us, say it over and again, over and over again to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, just say to yourself, I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is a day nearer. That's how Abraham lived, isn't it? For Canaan, the land that God had promised, the home that God had promised. And as you do that, it'll shape your life and your decisions and your joys and your longings. Jesus said it a different way. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. It's not permanent. It never can be. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we acknowledge with some shame that so often we don't live with the home that you've promised us. We try to create other ones in all sorts of ways. We fail. We're anxious. We're afraid. Please convince us. Assure us that Jesus has prepared a home for us. Give us a longing for that home, a longing to be with him, with you, forever. In Christ's name. Amen.